Good afternoon, everybody. I hope you're doing well. It's Steph. It is 4.30 on April the 26th, 2006, and I didn't podcast this morning. I was chatting. Christina had a fascinating dream that we were trying to unravel this morning, which was very interesting. So I didn't podcast this morning. I wanted to read to you an article that I was introduced to through the Harry Brown Show when the dear old man was still alive, and it's called War is a Racket, and it's written by Major General Smedley Butler who was in the uh, United States Marine Corps in World War I. He died uh, in 1940 in Philadelphia. And he wrote a very interesting article about uh, his approach to understanding war and its economic purpose. And speaking of economic purposes, I have forgotten. (laughs) Christina keeps reminding me, and I keep forgetting, to talk about donations. So thank you for those who donated earlier this week. It's been a day or two since I've received a donation. So I would really appreciate it if you would come by and click on www.freedomainradio.com, or you can also get there from the board uh, as well, uh, the main page of the board. Come and throw a few bucks my way. I will certainly appreciate it. I have a Google's AdWord program running now, which is fairly pricey, and I would like to keep that running. And in order to do that, I would really appreciate it if you could throw me some money. We have been doing quite well in terms of bandwidth. As you know, we've had a pretty significant increase in bandwidth month over month since the very beginning of this podcast series, so we know that we're reaching out to some people. We're talking about things on the board, like putting together freedomainradio.com business cards so that people can order them and have them to hand out, so you don't have to yell over the disco beat in your techno club (laughs) to the cutie that you're trying to find out is a libertarian warrior princess or not. So there's lots of things that we're doing, and I hope that you will throw a few bucks uh, to Freedom radio.com we certainly appreciate it we being i guess the royal we christine and i so i hope that you will do that if you're enjoying these podcasts and of course uh, feel free to participate for free on the board and the offer still stands if you donate up to 50 bucks i'll be happy to send you a copy of my thesis which i think you'll find very interesting if you donate 50 to 100 you get a copy of the god of atheists uh, anything over that you can choose two of my novels and anything over 150, I'm going to come up with a new brand spanking new uh, option for um, people who wanted to donate that much and things that they can get out of it. So I hope that you'll do that. And thank you very much for listening to the pitch. And now let's get on with the article. This uh, was written uh, just, uh, I guess, uh, in the 1930s as war clouds were gathering once more. And I, I found this quite compelling, and I hope that you do too. So this gentleman, Major General Smedley Butler, I'm not going to do the uh, accent that comes to mind with a name like that. It sounds like someone out of Gilbert and Sullivan. But uh, this is what he wrote. He said, War is a racket. It always has been. It is possibly the oldest, easily the most profitable, surely the most vicious. It is the only one international in scope. It is the only one in which the profits are reckoned in dollars and the losses in lives. A racket is best described, I believe, as something that is not what it seems to the majority of the people. Only a small inside group knows what it is about. It is conducted for the benefit of the very few at the expense of the very many. Out of war, a few people make huge fortunes. In World War I, a mere handful garnered the profits of the conflict. At least 21,000 new millionaires and billionaires were made in the United States during the World War. That many admitted their huge blood gains in their income tax returns. How many other war millionaires falsified their tax returns, no one knows. How many of these war millionaires shouldered a rifle? 
How many of them dug a trench? How many of them knew what it meant to go hungry in a rat-infested dugout? How many of them spent sleepless, frightened nights ducking shells and shrapnel and machine-gun bullets? How many of them parried a bayonet thrust of an enemy? How many of them were wounded or killed in battle? Out of war, nations acquire additional territory if they are victorious. They just take it. This newly acquired territory promptly is exploited by the few, the self-same few who wrung dollars out of the blood in the war. The general public shoulders the bill. And what is this bill? This bill renders a horrible accounting. Newly placed gravestones, mangled bodies, shattered minds, broken hearts and bones, economic instability, depression, and all its attendant miseries, back-breaking taxation for generations and generations. For a great many years as a soldier I had a suspicion that war was a racket. Not until I retired to civil life did I fully realize it. Now that I see the international war clouds gathering as they are today, I must face it and speak out. Again they are choosing sides. France and Russia met and agreed to stand side by side. Italy and Austria hurried to make a similar agreement. Poland and Germany cast sheep's eyes at each other, forgetting, for the nonce, one unique occasion, their dispute over the Polish corridor. The assassination of King Alexander of Yugoslavia complicated matters. Yugoslavia and Hungary, long bitter enemies, were almost at each other's throats. Italy was ready to jump in, but France was waiting. So was Czechoslovakia. All of them are looking ahead to war. Not the people, not those who fight and pay and die, only those who foment wars and remain safely at home to profit. There are forty million men under arms in the world today, and our statesmen and diplomats have the temerity to say that war is not in the making. Health bells are these forty million men being trained to be dancers? Not in Italy, to be sure. Premier Mussolini knows what they are being trained for. He, at least, is frank enough to speak out. Only the other day, Il Duce, in International Conciliation, the publication of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, said... And above all, fascism, the more it considers and observes the future and the development of humanity quite apart from political considerations of the moment, believes neither in the possibility nor the utility of perpetual peace. War alone brings up to its highest tension all human energy and puts the stamp of nobility upon the people who have the courage to meet it. Undoubtedly, Mussolini means exactly what he says. His well-trained army, his great fleet of planes, and even his navy are ready for war, anxious for it, apparently. His recent stand at the side of Hungary in the latter's dispute with Yugoslavia showed that, and the hurried mobilization of its troops in the Austrian border after the assassination of Dolphus showed it too. There are others in Europe too who saber-rattling presages war sooner or later. Herr Hitler with his rearming Germany and his constant demands for more and more arms, is an equal, if not greater, menace to peace. France only recently increased the term of its military service for its youth from a year to eighteen months. Yes, all over, nations are camping in their arms. The mad dogs of Europe are on the loose. In the Orient, the maneuvering is more adroit. Back in 1904, when Russia and Japan fought, we kicked out our old friends the Russians and back Japan. Then our very generous international bankers were financing Japan. Now the trend is to poison us against the Japanese. What does the open-door policy to China mean to us? A trade with China is about $90 million a year. Or the Philippine Islands? We've spent about $600 million in the Philippines in 35 years. And we, 
are bankers and industrialists and speculators, have private investments there of less than $200 million. Then to save that China trade of about $90 million, or to protect those private investments of less than $200 million in the Philippines, we would all be stirred up to hate Japan and go to war, a war that might well cost us tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of lives of Americans, and many more hundreds of thousands of physically maimed and mentally unbalanced men. Of course, for this loss, there would be a compensating profit. Fortunes would be made. Millions and billions of dollars would be piled up by a few. Munitions makers, bankers, shipbuilders, manufacturers, meat packers, speculators, they would fare well. Yes, they are getting ready for another war. Why shouldn't they? It pays high dividends. But what does it profit the men who are killed? What does it profit their mothers and sisters, their wives and their sweethearts? What does it profit their children? What does it profit anyone except the very few to whom war means huge profits? Yes. And what does it profit the nation? Take our own case. Until 1898 we didn't own a bit of territory outside the mainland of North America. At that time our national debt was a little more than a billion dollars. Then we became internationally minded. We forgot or shunted aside the advice of the father of a country. We forgot George Washington's warning about entangling alliances. We went to war. We acquired outside territory. At the end of World War I, as a direct result of our fiddling in international affairs, our national debt had jumped to over $25 billion. Our total favorable trade balance during the 25-year period was about $24 billion. Thus, on a purely bookkeeping basis, we ran a little behind year for year, and that foreign trade might well have been ours without the wars. It would have been far cheaper, not to say safer, for the average American who pays the bills to stay out of foreign entanglements. For very few, this racket, like bootlegging and other underworld rackets, brings fancy profits, but the cost of operations is always transferred to the people who do not profit. Chapter 2. Who Makes the Profits? The World War, rather our brief participation in it, has cost the United States some $52 billion. Figure it out, that means $400 to every American man, woman, and child. And we haven't paid the debt yet. We are paying it. Our children will pay it. And our children's children will probably still be paying the cost of that war. The normal profits of a business concern in the United States are 6, 8, 10, and sometimes 12%. But wartime profits, ah, that is another matter. Twenty, sixty, one hundred, three hundred, even eighteen hundred percent, the sky is the limit. All that traffic will bear. Uncle Sam has the money, let's go get it. Of course, it isn't put that crudely in wartime. It's stressed into speeches about patriotism, love of country, and we must all put our shoulders to the wheel. But the profits jump and leap and skyrocket and are safely pocketed. Let's just take a few examples. Take our friends, the DuPonts, the powder people. Didn't one of them testify before a Senate committee recently that their powder won the war or saved the world for democracy or something? How did they do in the war? They were a patriotic corporation. Well, the average earnings for the DuPonts for the period 1910 to 1914 were $6 million a year. It wasn't much, but the DuPonts managed to get along on it. Now, let's look at their average yearly profit during the war years, from 1914 to 1918. 
$58 million a year profit we find, nearly 10 times that of normal times. And the profits of normal times were pretty good, an increase in profits of more than 950%. Take one of our little steel companies that patriotically shunted aside the making of rails and girders and bridges to manufacture war materials. Well, their 1910 to 1914 yearly earnings averaged $6 million. Then came the war. And, like loyal citizens, Bethlehem Steel promptly turned to munitions making. Did their profits jump, or did they let Uncle Sam in for a bargain? Well, their 1914 to 1918 average was $49 million a year. Or, let's take United States Steel. The normal earnings during the five-year period prior to war were $105 million a year. Not bad. Then along came the war, and up went the profits. The average yearly profit for the period, 1914 to 1918, was $240 million. Not bad. There you have some of the steel and powder earnings. Let's look at something else. A little copper, perhaps. That always does well in war times. Anaconda, for instance. Average yearly earnings during the pre-war years, $10 million. During the war years, profits leap to $34 million per year. Or Utah copper, average $5 million during the 1910 to 1914 period, jumped to an average of $21 million, yearly profits for the war period. Let's group these five with three, three smaller companies. The total yearly average profits of the pre-war period, 1910 to 1914, were $137,480,000. Then along came the war. The average yearly profit for this group skyrocketed to 408 million 300,000 a little increase in profits of approximately 200%. Does war pay? Well, it certainly paid them, but they aren't the only ones. There are still others. Let's take leather. For the 3-year period before the war, the total profits of the Central Leather Company were 3.5 million dollars. That was approximately 1.167 million a year. Well, in 1916, Central Leather returned a profit of $15 million, a small increase of 1,100%. That's all. The General Chemical Company averaged a profit for the three years before the war of a little over 800000 a year. Came the war, and profits jumped to $12 million, a leap of 1,400%. International Nickel Company, you can't have a war without nickel, showed an increase in profits from a mere average of $4 million a year to $73 million a year. Not bad, an increase of more than 1,700%. American Sugar Refining Company, $2 million a year for the three years before the war, 1916 profit, $6 million. Listen to Senate document number 259, the 65th Congress reporting on corporate earnings and corporate revenues. Considering the profits of 122 meat packers, 153 cotton manufacturers, 299 garment makers, 49 steel plants, and 340 coal producers during the war, profits under 25% were exceptional. For instance, the coal companies made between 100% and 7,856% on their capital stock during the war. The Chicago Packers doubled and tripled their earnings. Ah, and let's not forget the bankers who financed the Great War. If anyone had the cream of the profits, it was the bankers.
Being partnerships rather than incorporated organizations, they do not have to report to stockholders, and their profits were as secret as they were immense. How the bankers made their millions and their billions, I do not know, because those little secrets never become public, even before a Senate investigatory body. But here's how some of the other patriotic industries and speculators chiseled their way into war profits. Take the shoe people. They like war. It brings business with abnormal profits. They made huge profits on sales abroad to our allies. Perhaps, like the munitions manufacturers and armaments manufacturers, they also sold to the enemy. For a dollar is a dollar, whether it comes from Germany or from France. But they did well by Uncle Sam, too. For instance, they sold Uncle Sam 35 million pairs of hobnailed service shoes. There were 4 million soldiers, 8 pairs and more to a soldier. My regiment during the war had only one pair to a soldier. Some of these shoes are probably still in existence. They were good shoes, but when the war was over, Uncle Sam has a matter of 25 million pairs left over, bought and paid for, profits recorded and pocketed. There were still lots of leather left, so the leather people sold your Uncle Sam hundreds of thousands of McClellan saddles for the cavalry. But there wasn't any American cavalry overseas. Somebody had to get rid of this leather, however. Somebody had to make a profit on it, and so we had a lot of McClellan saddles. And we probably have those yet. Also, somebody had a lot of mosquito netting. They sold your Uncle Sam 20 million mosquito nets for use of the soldiers overseas. I suppose the boys were expected to put it over them as they tried to sleep in muddy trenches, one hand scratching cooties on their backs and the other making passes at scurrying rats. Well, not one of those mosquito nets ever got to France. Anyhow, those thoughtful manufacturers wanted to make sure that no soldier would be without his mosquito net, so 40 million additional yards of mosquito netting were sold to Uncle Sam. There were pretty good profits in mosquito netting in those days, even if there were no mosquitoes in France. I suppose if the war had lasted just a little longer, the enterprising mosquito netting manufacturers would have sold your Uncle Sam a couple of consignments of mosquitoes to plant in France so that more mosquito netting would be in order. Airplane and engine manufacturers felt that they too should get their just profits out of this war. Why not? Everyone else was getting theirs. So one trillion dollars, count them if you have lived long enough, was spent by Uncle Sam in building airplane engines that never left the ground. Not one plane or motor out of the billion dollars worth ordered ever got into a battle in France. Just the same, the manufacturers made their little profit of 30, 100, or perhaps 300 percent. Undershirts for soldiers cost 14 cents to make, and Uncle Sam paid 30 to 40 cents for each of them. A nice little profit for the undershirt manufacturer. And the stocking manufacturers, and the uniform manufacturers, and the cap manufacturers, and the steel helmet manufacturers all got theirs. Why, when the war was over, some four million sets of equipment, knapsacks and the things that go to fill them, crammed warehouses on this side. Now they are being scrapped because regulations have changed the contents. But the manufacturers collected their wartime profits on them, and they will do it all over again the next time. There were lots of brilliant ideas for profit-making during the war. One very versatile patriot sold Uncle Sam 12 dozen 48-inch wrenches. Oh, they were very nice wrenches. The only trouble was that there was only one nut ever made that was large enough for these wrenches. That is the one that holds the turbines at Niagara Falls. Well, after Uncle Sam had bought them and the manufacturer had pocketed the profit, the wrenches were put on freight cards and shunted all over the United States in an effort to find a use for them. When the armistice was signed, it was indeed a sad blow to the wrench manufacturer. He was just about to make some nuts to fit the wrenches. Then he planned to sell these two to your Uncle Sam. 
Still, another had a brilliant idea that colonels shouldn't ride in automobiles, nor should they even ride on horseback. One has probably seen a picture of Andy Jackson riding in a buckboard. Well, some six thousand buckboards were sold to Uncle Sam for the use of colonels. Not one of them was used. But the buckboard manufacturer got his war profit. The shipbuilders felt they should come in on some of it, too. They built a lot of ships that made a lot of profit, more than three trillion dollars worth. Some of the ships were all right, but 635 million worth of them were made of wood and wouldn't float. The seams opened up and they sank. We paid for them, though, and somebody pocketed the profits. It has been estimated by statisticians and economists and researchers that the war cost your Uncle Sam $52 trillion. Of this sum, $39 trillion was expended in the actual war itself. This expenditure yielded $16 trillion in profits. This is how 21,000 billionaires and millionaires got their way. This $16 trillion in profits is not to be sneezed at. It is quite a tidy sum, and it went to a very few. The Senate Nye Committee probe of the munitions industry and its wartime profits, despite its sensational disclosures, has hardly scratched the surface. Chapter 3. Who Pays the Bills? Who provides the profits, these nice little profits of 20, 100, 300, 1500, and 1800 percent? We all pay them in taxation. We paid the bankers their profits when we bought Liberty Bonds at $100 and sold them back at 84 or $86 to the bankers. These bankers can collected $100 plus. It was a simple manipulation. The bankers controlled the security marts. It was easy for them to depress the price of those bonds. Then all of us, the people, got frightened and sold the bonds at 84 or $86. The bankers bought them. Then these same bankers stimulated a boom, and government bonds went par and above. Then the bankers collected their profits. But the soldier pays the biggest part of the bill. If you don't believe this, visit the American cemeteries on the battlefields abroad, or visit any of the veterans' hospitals in the United States. On a tour of the country, in the midst of which I am at this time of writing, I have visited 18 government hospitals for veterans. In them are a total of about 50,000 destroyed men, men who were the pick of the nation 18 years ago. The very able chief surgeon at the government hospital at Milwaukee, where there are 3,800 of the living dead, told me that mortality among veterans is three times as great as among those who stayed at home. Boys with a normal viewpoint are taken out of the fields and offices and factories and classrooms and put into ranks. There they were remolded, they were made over, they were made to about-face and regard murder as the order of the day. They were put shoulder to shoulder, and through mass psychology, they were entirely changed. We used them for a couple of years, and trained them to think nothing at all of killing or being killed. Then suddenly, we discharged them, and told them to make another about-face. This time, they had to do their own readjustment, sans mass psychology, sans officers' aid and advice, and sans nationwide propaganda. We didn't need them any more, so we scattered them out without any three minutes or liberty loan speeches or parades. Many, too many, of these fine young boys are eventually destroyed mentally because they could not make that final about-face alone. In the government hospital at Marion, Indiana, 1,800 of these boys are in pens. 500 of them in barracks with steel bars and wires all around outside the buildings and on the porches. These already have been mentally destroyed. These boys don't even look like human beings. Oh, the looks on their faces. Physically, they're in good shape. Mentally, they are gone. 
There are thousands and thousands of these cases, and more and more are coming in all the time. The tremendous excitement of the war, the sudden cutting off of that excitement, the young boys couldn't stand it. That's a part of the bill. So much for the dead. They have paid their part of the war profits. So much for the mentally and physically wounded. They are paying now their share of the war profits. But the others paid too. They paid with heartbreaks when they tore themselves away from their firesides and their families to don the uniform of Uncle Sam, on which a profit had been made. They paid another part in the training camps, where they were re-regimented and drilled, while others took their jobs and their places in the lives of their communities. They paid for it in the trenches, where they shot and were shot, where they were hungry for days at a time, where they slept in the mud and the cold and in the rain, the moans and shrieks of the dying for a horrible lullaby. But don't forget, the soldiers paid part of the dollars and cents, too. Up to and including the Spanish-American War, we had a prize system, and soldiers and sailors fought for money. During the Civil War, they were paid bonuses in many instances before they went into service. The government or states paid as high as $1,200 for an enlistment. In the Spanish-American War, they gave prize money. When we captured any vessel, the soldiers all got their share. At least, they were supposed to. Then it was found that we could reduce the cost of wars by taking all the prize money and keeping, but conscripting, the soldier anyway. The soldiers couldn't bargain for their labor. Everyone else could bargain, but the soldier couldn't. Napoleon once said, All men are enamored of decorations. They positively hunger for them. So, by developing the Napoleonic system, the medal business, the government learned it could get soldiers for less money, because the boys liked to be decorated. Until the Civil War, there were no medals. Then the Congressional Medal of Honor was handed out. It made enlistments easier. After the Civil War, no new medals were issued until the Spanish-American War. In the World War, we used propaganda to make boys accept conscription. They were made to feel ashamed if they didn't join the army. So vicious was this war propaganda that even God was brought into it. With few exceptions, our clergymen joined in the clamor to kill, kill, kill. To kill the Germans, God is on our side, it is his will that the Germans be killed. And in Germany, the good pastors called on the Germans to kill the Allies to please the same God. That was part of the general propaganda, built up to make people war-conscious and murder-conscious. Beautiful ideals were painted for our boys who were sent out to die, this was the war to end all wars. This was the war to make the world safe for democracy. No one mentioned to them as they marched away that their going and their dying would mean huge war profits. No one told these American soldiers that they might be shot down by bullets made by their own brothers here. No one told them that the ships on which they were going to cross might be torpedoed by submarines built with United States patents. Oh, they were just told it was going to be a glorious adventure. Thus, having stuffed patriotism down their throats, it was decided to make them help pay for the war, too. So we gave them a large salary of $30 a month. All they had to do for this munificent sum was to leave their dear ones behind, give up their jobs, lie in swampy trenchers, eat canned willy when they could get it, and kill, and kill, and kill, and be killed. But wait, half of that wage just a little more than a riveter in a shipyard or a laborer in a munitions factory safe at home made in a day was promptly taken from him to support his dependents so that they would not become a charge upon his community. Then we made 
him pay what amounted to accident insurance, something the employer pays for in an enlightened state, and that cost him six dollars a month. He had less than nine dollars a month left. Then, the most crowning insolence of all, he was virtually blackjacked into paying for his own ammunition, clothing, and food by being made to buy liberty bonds. Most soldiers got no money at all on paydays. We made them buy liberty bonds at a hundred dollars, and then we bought them back when they came back from the war and couldn't find work at eighty-four dollars and eighty-six dollars. And the soldiers bought about two billion dollars worth of these bonds. Yes, the soldier pays the greatest part of the bill. His family pays too. They pay it in the same heartbreak that he does. As he suffers, they suffer. At nights, as he lay in the trenches and watched shrapnel burst about him. They lay at home in their beds and tossed sleeplessly his father, his mother, his wife, his sisters, his brothers, his sons, and his daughters. When he returned home minus an eye or minus a leg or with his mind broken, they suffered too, as much as and even sometimes more than he. Yes, and they too contributed their dollars to the profits of the munitions makers and the bankers and the shipbuilders and the manufacturers and the speculators made. They too bought liberty bonds and contributed to the profit of the bankers after the armistice in the hocus-pocus of manipulated liberty bond prices. And even now the families of the wounded men and of the mentally broken and those who were never able to readjust themselves are still suffering and still paying. Chapter 4. How to Smash This Racket Well, it's a racket, all right. A few profit and the many pay, but there is a way to stop it. You can't end it by disarmament conferences. You can't eliminate it by peace parlies at Geneva. Well-meaning but impractical groups can't wipe it out by resolutions. It can be smashed effectively only by taking the profit out of war. The only way to smash this racket is to conscript capital and industry and labor before the nation's manhood can be conscripted. One month before the government can conscript the young men of the nation, it must conscript capital and industry and labor. Let the officers and the directors and the high-powered executives of our armament factories and our munitions makers and our shipbuilders and our airplane builders and the manufacturers of all other things that provide profit in wartime as well as the bankers and the speculators be conscripted to get $30 a month the same wage as the lads in the trenches get. Let the workers in these plants get the same wages, all the workers, all presidents, all executives, all directors, all managers, all bankers, yes and all generals, and all admirals, and all politicians, and all officers, and all government office holders, everyone in the nation, to be restricted to a total monthly income, not to exceed that paid to the soldiers in the trenches. Let all those kings, and tycoons, and masters of business, and all those workers in industry, and all their senators, and governors, and majors, pay half their roughly $30 wage to their families, and pay war risk insurance, and buy liberty bonds. Why shouldn't they? They aren't running any risk of being killed or of having their bodies mangled or their minds shattered. They aren't sleeping in muddy trenches. They aren't hungry. Our soldiers are. Give capital and industry and labor 30 days to think it over, and you'll find by that time there will be no war. That will smash the war racket. That and nothing else. Now, this is a fantastic article in my view, simply because the more things change, the more they stay the same. War is the same as it always has been. It's a racket for the transfer of capital to sociopaths. And I hope that this has been helpful for you to realize that somebody sitting between World War I and World War II and looking back at World War I 
and the American involvement, which was minor compared to what was going on in the Allies, it's very clear about what has happened. And just about every single criticism, except for some of the ones around conscription, because who is conscripted into war now are the taxpayers, not the soldiers. Except for a few of the comments about conscription, it is all completely and absolutely valid, and I hope that it gives you some perspective on how eternal this problem is that we're facing. The only way to smash the racket is to smash the state, to undermine, through the argument for morality, everything that is going on around moral justifications for the state. And when you end that, by God, then you have ended war, and there is no greater gift that mankind can receive from us philosophers.